0: Welcome, F1 fans, to your favourite bit straight in podcast land. It's Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Isn't it wonderful to have Formula One back? We had an incredible triple header to open the season with so many storylines. And at the centre of it all, once again, was Lewis Hamilton. The six-time champ remained imperious on track, And he's becoming a true leader off it as well. The Mercedes driver is doing a fantastic job at highlighting the bigger issues confronting our sports and indeed society in general regarding racism, diversity and inclusion. He set up the Hamilton Commission aimed at boosting the diversity in the sport and ensuring more people from different backgrounds have the chance to pursue their dreams. But while Lewis has been a true trailblazer and an inspiration, he wasn't the first black racing driver to drive a Formula 1 car. No, that accolade went to an African-American called William Theodore Ribs, better known as Willie T. As an up-and-coming racer, Willie tested for Brabham at Estoril 35 years ago, and I'm delighted to say he's my guest on the show this week. If you've seen Willie's documentary on Netflix called Uppity, you'll know that he's a real character and he's also passionate about Formula One. He dreamt of becoming a Grand Prix driver after meeting Dan Gurney as a boy and he followed up on that dream by coming to England in 1977 to compete in Formula Ford. Despite racing and beating the likes of Nigel Mansell, he ran out of money and was forced to return home to the US to continue his racing career, and it was there, in Formula Atlantic, NASCAR and Trans Am, that he experienced racist abuse at the racetrack. He even received death threats on a number of occasions, but Willie never gave up, the abuse only spurring him on to greater heights. And there were great highs. He qualified for two Indy 500s, again, a first for an African-American driver, and Bernie Eccleston gave him that F1 test in the Brabham. He was quick, too. These days, Willie lives in Texas, not far from the Circuit of the Americas, and he very much keeps across what's happening in Formula One. He knows Lewis Hamilton well. In fact, he's regularly Lewis's guest at the US Grand Prix. He also remains close to Bernie Eccleston, even if he was troubled by the former F1 boss's recent comments on racism and diversity in Formula One. So sit back and enjoy hearing Willie's story. His passion for motorsport shines bright. And he's also very amusing and a brilliant storyteller, which is good news for us because his career was heavily influenced by the likes of Muhammad Ali, boxing promoter Don King and film star Paul Newman. I hope you enjoy what I feel is an important conversation. Uh, Willie, I can see you. Uh, We're connected via Zoom. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Just tell us, where are you? What are you up to?
1: Well, I'm at home in Texas and uh, been out chasing coyotes this morning and, uh, you know, staying clean, you know, avoiding any obstacle.
0: So, look, you're in Texas. How close to Cota and Austin are you?
1: You know, Texas is a big state. And I just happened to live 40 minutes from the track, from Cota. You know, 40 minutes in Texas is like walking across the street. (laughs) (laughs) Everything. I mean, you know, walking to my mailbox takes 10 minutes.
0: And have you been to the U.S. Grand Prix at Cota and been involved in the racetrack in any way?
1: I first saw the track when it was dirt. You know, the the contractor out there took me out in his... uh, in his rover and showed me uh the property and they had already started moving dirt so uh that was the first time that i had actually been to what was called coda there was nothing there just dirt and tractors and bulldozers and then later when they had their first gig in 2012 of course bernie ecclestone uncle bernie uh, had me there as his guest,
0: uh oh, did he? Because of course it was Bernie for whom you tested the Brabham. gosh, what thirty odd years ago now?
1: December of nineteen eighty five, I think it was right at the end of the year, and Lewis Hamilton was born that year.
0: <laughs> now you're showing your age. Willie, can we talk about that test actually because um you know it was it was a momentous moment, uh for lots of reasons. You were the first black man to test a Formula One car but it was also a return to Europe for you because you began your racing career in England in 1977. How did that test with Brabham come about?
1: Well, actually, it started uh, when I was in England. That it, the plan started then. Bernie Ecclestone, when I was racing in the Dunlop Championship in Formula Ford, him and Gordon Murray came to uh, Brands Hatch. It was my fourth race. And they came up to me and they introduced themselves. And Bernie just said, to "Keep up the good work. Uh, we're watching you." And wow. that was the introduction. You know, after that, I knew my whole reason for going coming to England was all answered. All the uh, questions were answered. And over the years, he kept up. And I couldn't stay in England. I would have stayed, and went on to Formula Three, and if necessary, Formula Two. The whole objective was Formula One. I mean, Emerson Fittipaldi sort of gave me the playbook and uh, what he did. He went from Brazil and went to Formula Fords and and I think nineteen seventy and and did real well. And then PK, they everyone came over. Ayrton Senna, of course, right? If you wanted to be a Formula One driver, you went to England. That was Harvard.
0: You were very successful in England as well. You won won the championship, six race wins. So how come you couldn't stay for 78? What happened after that?
1: Ran out of money. Right. That okay. first year my parents paid for it. But, you know, to move on to Formula 3 it was going to take way more money. My my sisters and brothers were not going to let me spend up their college money, right? They, they they had to get a piece of action too. They all had to go to college, so I had to come home, and I didn't want
0: to come home. You didn't want to come home, no?
1: No, no. I would have if I could have stayed. I would have stayed.
0: Did you contact Bernie to see if uh, he would help pave the way with a few dollars?
1: I didn't have that that close a relationship with him at that time. I mean, he uh, he's never told me no, never, and. There were some favors that he needed from me that I delivered on as well that uh, I won't discuss. It'll be discussed in in a book. But, uh, you know, he's been an, an awesome human being. And there's no question that between him and Ron Dennis, have would put uh, Lewis Hamilton where he is today. They saw the value of Lewis Hamilton. Bernie saw the value of diversity in Formula One. Formula One is light years ahead of anything that America's doing. Light years to this moment.
0: And that's thanks in large part to Lewis Hamilton these days, isn't it? And uh, particularly this year.
1: I think what that young man is doing is fabulous. Formula One is a worldwide sport, huge platform. And for him to take a stand, because a lot of athletes, especially the ones over here in America, they're afraid of losing money. They're afraid of losing their commercial value. Lewis put it all on the line, and I'm watching these other drivers in Formula One. All these young drivers—they're all manning up. They're manning up and doing the right thing. And you know that's what you know uh, Muhammad Ali did. Muhammad Ali manned up. Well, that's what you have to do. I'm all—I'm proud of them, and I'm proud of Formula One and Mercedes. More importantly, I'm—I'm dressed in all black right now because of Mercedes.
0: (laughs) It was a white T-shirt until recently, and it's now a black black one because they've changed their colors.
1: Yeah, well, it's hot here in Texas, so wearing this, I'm really (laughs) sacrificing.
0: (laughs) Listen, Willie, can I... I, I, There's lots I want to talk to you about sort of um, diversity in motorsport, but just if we can go back to that test at Brabham. Okay, so it's December of 85. Bernie, I assume, gives you the... You get a phone call, you get on a plane... And what happens next?
1: Well, I got, a, uh, I got a phone call from Herbie Blash. He says we're testing, and the big man wants you to be uh, over here for it. So, and, that, and the test was actually planned in June in Detroit when Don King and Bernie Ecclestone met, which was prearranged. So the test was planned in June. And uh, when it was time to uh, be at Estril, uh Herbie Blash called and said, uh, get on a plane, we're, we're running you. And so I got, I went over there and it rained for the first three days. And Charlie Whiting didn't want to send me out in the rain for the first time in uh, BMW Turbo that had an on and off switch. There was no mid range with the, that BMW Turbo. It was four cylinder, it was either all on or all off, and when it came on, uh, it snapped like a whip.
0: So, who else was there that day?
1: Well, I mean, it was a full-on uh, Formula One test.
0: So, was PK there? Or?
1: Oh, yeah, oh yeah. And PK, he was funny. And Nelson and I have always been good friends. And Nelson, he had just went to Williams, and he says, um, he says, I, I just want to tell you, uh, this car is very difficult. It's, it, it's all and off. You know, and in his Brazilian accent, he says, uh, it just, the Williams is six cylinder, is easy power band, and uh, no problem. He says, just be careful. That's what Nelson said. He was just like, a, like an older brother, right? So, uh, of course, Senna was there. He was in the Lotus at the time, the John Player Lotus, and then the Williams, of, uh, I think it was Mansell and, uh, and PK. And then, you know, uh, Patrese and DeAndalus.
0: Gosh, they were all there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So I guess it, so Estoril is quite a high speed track anyway, isn't it? So how were you physically when you actually got going in the car?
1: The hardest thing to adapt was the, the brakes. Okay, that was the toughest part. You know, the power, you, you adapt to the power and, 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 and how it, it, it goes on and off. But learn to convince yourself, and I had never driven anything like that. I mean, I was driving Trans Am cars that weighed 1,500 pounds more. So convincing yourself that I can drive it down in that corner deep, I mean, you know, was the most difficult part. But once I got adapted to it and started working more into it, more into it, it was better. I would have liked to have spent you know, uh, about three or four days solid driving, we would have really put some numbers down then.
0: Did you get to the point where you were enjoying driving the car? Once you understand
1: it, then it becomes fun. You know, in the beginning, you're like, okay, what am I doing? And what do I need to do to learn this thing fast? In Formula One, you don't get a lot of time. Your audition is real short. Towards the end, once I started understanding what I could do with the car, uh, then it was fun.
0: And were you quick? Don't be modest.
1: I wasn't uh, the, the top five guys, but I was definitely in the mid-pack. And uh, I was happy with that because all those other guys had been running, right? And Herbie Blash told me, he said, we, we set a time for you where you exceeded the time by over a, a second. So they were happy with that. I would have liked to have done even more. But, you know, we were fighting weather more than anything.
0: Was there ever talk of another test, a second test with the team?
1: No. Bernie was starting to phase himself out of Formula One. Uh, six months later, I think De Angelus was killed in the Brabham testing at Paul Ricard. And then uh, not much longer after, I think Bernie, you know juggling two acts at the time, Formula One and owning a team. And then eventually it uh, came to an end. But then I ended up going to race for Dan Gurney after that.
0: Of course, in IMSA, the sports car series in America.
1: Yeah, in IMSA and then, and then there to uh, IndyCar.
0: Yeah. just So that F1 car, the Brabham BT54, was that the fastest car you ever drove?
1: Oh, by far. By far. As far as uh, being on a road course now, nah, IndyCar on ovals really fast, right? But on the road course, yeah, without doubt. I mean, way faster, not a little faster, way
0: faster. Did it whet your appetite to, you know, want to get back into Formula One again? Or was it a box ticking exercise for you in that? Okay, I've done Formula One now. I'm going to go and focus on IndyCar.
1: Oh, no. If, if I could have gotten the opportunity to continue, I would have done it. I mean, that was my ultimate goal. That was the reason I went to England in the first place, was to be a Formula One driver. So Formula One is very political, very political. And if there would have been a, a multinational company or even a, a huge American uh, conglomerate that would have supported me, I would have stayed there. If, for example, Shell Oil would have called Bertie and said, we want Willie T in that car. Bernie would have put me in the car.
0: How fantastic. You obviously did have a, a, a wonderful relationship with Bernie. But can we wind the clock back even further now and say, Willie, why motor racing?
1: Well, I mean, that's what I grew up. My family had the money for my dad to be a race driver. Only, uh, a, and, and just hobby. He did it as a hobby. He didn't do it professionally because we had a family business. I was born, then he would, went to cars. And uh, so I was going around the country with him as a young kid, watching him race and helping him. And so I knew from the time I was nine years old what my career was going to be. If you look at Lewis's career, Lewis started as a child behind the wheel. And that's how most of the drivers, if you look at all the pedigree in Formula One, they all started on go-karts. They all started as
0: babies. And you started age nine.
1: Yeah, well, I started, yeah, I started at age nine. You know, and I didn't race go-karts. Now, we had go-karts. And we always went to go-kart track and raced each other. But I never raced formally like Lewis did. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through
0: adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And so you came to England in 77. We've already discussed that you won the championship and were very quick in that formula Ford. But how did you find living in England? So far from home, you're a, you're a West Coast American boy. How tough was it? It was like being on
1: another planet. Going to England, and I had a a great relationship, still do. When I go to England now, it's just like homecoming. And the relationships that I had then and now, you know, I I was asked about well, you know, how is America compared racism? It focused on racism. How is America? Compared to England, I said, there is no comparison. Zero. The treatment I received over there was uh, fabulous.
0: Even within racing, I mean, it was very much a white man's sport now, and I'm guessing it was back then as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, but when I showed up at Brands Hatch, for example, I got the title Willie T from Anthony Marsh. Anthony Marsh was calling a race at Brands Hatch and on my entry was William T. Ribs. And he says, well, we have young William. I'll just call him Willie T. Oh, and really? Anthony Marsh created Willie T. Ribs.
0: That's fantastic. And of course, the T stands for Theodore, doesn't it? Yes. Now, if, if you were a bit younger, I would have said, oh, were your parents fans of uh, Theodore Formula One team and Teddy Yip? <laughs> uh,
1: no. No. Teddy's not going to get any credit on that.
0: Um, but you, so when you were in England, you weren't made to feel like an outsider. You were just part of the racing fraternity and, and everyone was wishing you well.
1: They saw Willie T as a badass. He's a badass race driver. And we, we raced like hell. Uh, I didn't meet Nigel Mansell until we were on the lorry at Brands Hatch. The race was over. Michael Rowe from Ireland won it. I was second and Mansell was third. That's where I met Nigel Mansell. We had these laurel wreaths around our neck and we were parading around the track for the fans, right behind the lorry, or not behind, on the, on the back of the lorry. And uh, that's where I met Mansell. And we've been bu- buddies ever since.
0: Have you? Fantastic. What impression did he make on you back then when you were both up and coming?
1: He was fast as hell. That's the impression I got. Because we raced back and forth. The three of us, Roe, myself, and Mansell, we were 50% sideways everywhere around the whole track. I could read his name and number on the side of his car all race long because he was sideways. And it was just, it was great. Nobody banged into each other. I mean, we were running close, but racing with each other, you knew, okay, we're bad cats. We're some bad cats. And we're going somewhere. And that's the whole objective. The whole objective was to show the big boys that were up-and-comers.
0: Where did you live in England at the time? Can you remember? I lived in Essex, a place called
1: Harold Wood. I guess it was close to Romford. And I didn't know my way. I, I lived a little bit in Harold Wood, Essex. I lived in Ivory Heath, Buckinghamshire for a while. I moved around a little bit, but everywhere I went was great.
0: So then you return to the States in seventy-eight because you ran out of money. You mentioned that earlier. And then you went to Formula Atlantic, I think it was next, wasn't it? Was your success in the UK recognized by the US racing fraternity?
1: Some recognized it, some ignored it. The Formula One industry, the people in Formula One, Ross Braun, for example, awesome human being, right? They recognize my uh, talent, and Bernie, of course, did. You know there were many people in the sport that knew. It. In America, they sort of they didn't treat me as well, and to this day. But it is, you know, I, I don't re- have any regrets about it. I mean, that's who they are.
0: But you feel your treatment down to ethnicity. Is that what you're referring to? That held you back.
1: Oh, sure, without without question. Without a doubt, anybody that says it's not is lying. That's what it is. That's what it, you know, the sport reflects that. And now the sport is trying to change that image, right? Formula One is out in front. They're trying to diversify the sport where new millennials, kids today, they are going to be the bread and butter for auto racing. And if kids today are turned off by the lack of diversity or the lack of opportunity, and they know, they know, they see it, then, uh, then the sport is not going to succeed.
0: So were you not given drives, for example, because of your color?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, there's drivers that have gone to England. There's drivers that have been successful over here that got an opportunity. They got an opportunity. There was opportunities I didn't get. That's a fact. But I didn't quit. I kept going, and I kept pushing. and there was always the good, okay? There's gonna be the bad, and they're all out there. They're out there today. those the people who are hating on Lewis Hamilton for the position he's taken, okay? But then there's the good. And the good always pushed the bad out of the way. And I had that. I had that with Jim Truman. I had that with Paul Newman. I had that with Dan Gurney. They knew. They hear. They hear what's going on. They blow it off. And they push me around those obstacles.
0: And where were the obstacles most prevalent? Was it one particular category? or
1: It was probably, I would say, corporate America was never supportive of the E.T. Rips. Never. Uh, especially once I got to IndyCar. I got virtually no corporate support in IndyCar despite being a winning race driver. I mean, it wasn't about color uh, in my case, as far as winning and losing because I could win and I did win and I won a lot. So it was a huge obstacle then and still now. And, you know, if Formula One, they want to open the door up to diversity. Well, Chase Carey knows where to find Willie T. Ribbs. I'll help you open that door and help you un- understand why you should open the door and, and how to do it and get the message. Lewis is a great ambassador for that. But if there's anybody that really has got the battle scars, Willie T. Ripps has got them. You look at what he's dealt with, there's no comparison to what Willie T. Ribbs dealt with. No comparison. Just for me wanting to do what is my right, my right and my ambition, I, I was uh, getting death threats.
0: From who, Willie?
1: Oh, I got letters. Well, especially when I was uh, uh, trying to do NASCAR. I got letters and you get phone calls. I enjoyed the letters because they couldn't spell. They couldn't write a sentence, but they could get the N-word right. They always could spell the N-word right. But Kill ya was with like one L, right? It was <laughs> Kill ya. Well, there's two Ls in Kill.
0: Uh, Willie, you're being quite flippant about it now, all these years later. I was,
1: the, I was even more then. Really? Oh, yeah. I come off a ranch. We know how to protect ourselves. I grew up learning how to protect myself and was very good at it. Me and my cousin, who's six foot five, 280 pounds of play football. He was with me all the time. Big Donnie, he wore a cowboy hat. He was a massive man. And we would sit back and, and have a beer and read them and laugh because we knew. You, you guys, they make all that tough talk. You're not going to do a damn thing.
0: Well, except, Willie, can I point you towards Talladega 1978? That NASCAR race where... <laughs> Didn't you ask at the driver's briefing, "Can you overtake on the grass or something?" Yeah, (laughs) just to wind everybody up. But I mean, there there is a serious story there. Can you just tell us about what happened that weekend?
1: Well, I got there and I was excited. Okay, about going to the race. It was going to be my first stock car race. There were some drivers I wanted to meet. One of them was named David Pearson. He's called the Silver Fox. And when I was brought to meet him he didn't even want to look at me i wanted to just say hi and that i liked him and his style and how he raced totally blew me off but when i first got there people would walk by me and spit near my feet
0: so are we talking other drivers would do that uh one driver uh, one driver
1: for sure all the rest were just personnel by then after that i got the message after it happened a few times, and then I thought, okay, um, if you boys want to piss me off, okay, you did, and now I'm going to get in the drivers' meeting and 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 ask the question that none of you dumbasses have ever asked. And I did. Can you pass on the grass? And there was a reason why I asked that question. But uh, if you want to provoke me, I'll uh, I'll swing. You throw the pitch, I'll swing. I'm not going to turn another cheek. Never have and never will.
0: Okay, but what happened next, that weekend at Talladega?
1: Oh, that was it. I mean, uh, <laughs> just the question made me uppity. I became uppity after that. That's where the title uppity came from.
0: You're referring to this wonderful Netflix uh, film about your life, aren't you? Uppity, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, uppity. Right here. Yeah, I can see wearing
0: a hat. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And Uppity right now is a hit. It is huge.
0: Anyone um, listening who hasn't seen Uppity, it really is sensational. I I, I was watching it last night and it's an amazing story, Willie T. Yours is an amazing story. But you then became Uppity at Talladega and they said, sorry, you are not racing. Is that what happened?
1: Well, the promoter promoter realized that this could be uh, a real problem. That was just the tip of the iceberg that one, I wasn't going to turn the other cheek and I wasn't going to be their house, act like their houseboy. Okay. When I first got down there, I went to the restaurant at the hotel I was staying at and all the waiters in there were African-American and the cooks were African-American. And I walked into the restaurant, they looked at me and they just sort of stared. And then the waiter says to me after I had, Gotten my food, my breakfast. The waiter looks at me and says, You're a little crazy. I said, What'd you say? He says, You're a little crazy. They ain't used to anybody like you coming down here. I said, Well, they better get used to it because they haven't seen nothing yet. I was not going to take a back seat and I was not going to play a second class citizen ever. I didn't grow up that way. I grew up from a well off family. But there you think. And that's how I dealt with them. I will respect you, but you have you're gonna respect me. And I'm gonna treat you just how you treat me. That's how I was raised. Got nothing to do with skin color, got nothing to do with gender or race. How you treat me is how I'm gonna treat
0: you. Did you ever consider giving up?
1: No, never. Never. My grandpa would have kicked my
0: ass.
1: (laughs) Oh, he would not. He had no tolerance for failure. He had no tolerance for playing the victim. I never played the victim. He had no tolerance for that. He wouldn't even spoke to me. He was born in 1899. He started a business in 1927. He was very successful. His uh, message was, if I can do it at the time I did it, you can do it.
0: He obviously had a big influence on you your your grandfather. I don't. What did he make of you wanting to become a racing driver?
1: Well, he didn't want me to become a racing driver. He hated racing. My dad was spending up so much of the business money yeah. racing. I mean, he hated he hated racing and you did not talk about it. You didn't mention racing around him. And then I, you know, when I, when he found out I wanted to go to England, he said you're a damn fool. He says, I just uh, built this business for you and the family, so that you would be in control of your own destiny, so no one could tell you what to do, that you would be your own boss. And I told him, I said, you know, grandpa, I I, I understand what you've done, but I have to, I, I wouldn't be happy doing working in the business. He said, All right, you go do your thing. And I did. And when I he was happy when I did well in England. Uh, he started paying attention and I could talk with him a, a little bit about racing.
0: When you started having big success in Trans Am, I'm sure your grandpa was very happy, but tell me about this um, relationship you had with your teammate, David Hobbs, of course, a grand, an ex-Grand Prix driver, seven Grand Prix. In the film Uppity, you say that your relationship with him got personal. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, in and- David Hobbs, you know, I I, <laughs> I love him when he drinks. Anyway, he uh, expected me to be the number two driver. When I signed with the team, he was David Hobbs, the veteran with all the experience. I was supposed to finish second behind him. Well, I didn't go in with that. That was not what uh, I was told. And I wouldn't have done that anyway. Fastest man wins. So after the, actually it was after our very first race, the honeymoon was over
0: after the first race. Because he, he saw you as a threat immediately.
1: Oh, oh yeah. I was, I, the very first race, I outqualified I, I him in the very first race.
0: Did the situation improve with him? Or? Never. Never. No, it did
1: not. It went steadily downhill and then it sort of just got to, to the bottom. I mean, we, we, were, we started at the top of the hill. We just stayed at the bottom, and I was fine with that. He's a race driver. Okay, I I expect him to want to beat me. I expect all those boys that are racing in Austria, those boys want to beat each other. You know, it's not personal as much as it is business. So I understood his position.
0: Have you ever been friends with any teammate you've ever had?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mark Smith and I were great teammates in IndyCar. Chris Kord, Dennis Ozzy, when I was with Gurney, great teammates. Yeah, that was about it. It's not a long list. <laughs> yeah, not, not, you really don't, you're not sweet kissing cousins. I mean, even uh, 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 Botas and Hamilton, I mean, you know, they, they're teammates, but we're rivalries too. And, you know, any man that wants to be a race driver, a serious one wants to win. And, you know, you're, uh, you're usually your your teammates, your biggest rival.
0: Now, look, your contacts book uh, is the envy of, crikey, probably everyone. And there's just a few people I wanted to ask you about. One was Muhammad Ali, because I believe you met him when you were in England in 77.
1: I did. I met him. Uh, One of the motorsports press called me and said, Muhammad Ali's coming to town. We'd like to get a picture with you and him. So I knew he was staying at the London Hilton. I uh, knew that he got up and ran every morning at 6 a.m. in Hyde Park. So I waited for him. uh, Actually, I stayed stayed up all night. I went to Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London. I watched (laughs) Dizzy Gillespie play. until about three in the morning. And then I went, you know, I sort of, you know, hung out there until they ran me out at four in the morning. And then I went back to the London Hilton. I waited out, I waited for Muhammad Ali till 6 a.m. He came out right on the dock, 6 a.m. out of the elevator. And I asked him, could I go jog with him? He told me no. He said no. And he was by himself. I said, well, I stayed up all night to run with you. He said, you, you shouldn't have done that. I said, well, I did. So he said, okay, you, you run behind me. So I ran. <laughs> of course ran. you
0: had to be behind, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so for the first 10 minutes, he didn't say anything. And then he, he said, uh, he looked over his shoulder and he says, what's the black boy from America doing over here? What are you doing here? I said, "Well, oh, I'm dry. I drive race cars." What? I said, there ain't no black race drivers." I said, "Well, I am." You ever get scared? I said, "No, sir." I said, "You ever get scared of Joe Frazier?" And he stopped right in the middle and turned around and said, mm, "I'll knock you out for saying that." <laughs> and that, that was how the relationship began.
0: That's amazing. Wow. And then did he become a friend? Did you stay in touch with him after?
1: Oh that? yeah. Oh yeah, he he became a mentor. He was advising me on what I was going to deal with. You know, Henry Ribs gave me the the whole alligator skin on how tough you got to be and determined. But he was warning me about the opposition I was going to get not necessarily in England, but when I back in America. Cuz he came from Louisville, Kentucky. He knew what NASCAR was about. He knew what NASCAR stood for. So he warned me.
0: Did he ever come to any of your races?
1: No. His trainer did, Bandini Brown, who invented float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Bandini came to see
0: me race. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I and I read that um Ali taught you just sort of some self defense moves. Is that true?
1: Well, he when I was it wasn't so when I was running with him, he said Mm, you look like a good athlete. You need to get in the boxing gym just in case you have to, to protect yourself. And so I started training in the boxing gym. As a matter of fact, a lot of people, and this wasn't in the documentary, I had only enough money to race, okay, from the family. And, you know, I, I, I had to make a little money just to eat. So, I used to, they used to have boxing matches in different pubs around East London on Fridays. And these old drunkards would, they'd rope off uh, a part of the pub and they would start uh, boxing each other. And the gloves were all split open and foam was coming out. And so, uh, my buddy, who we just happened to walk into this pub, and so my buddy says, Hey, really? He says, You're in good shape you work out. Why don't you get in there and, and fight? So the people at the bar bet, were betting money. Hell, I made 100 pounds my first night. Well, 100 pounds would last me a week with, for food. So I did it for a few times and then they finally stopped it because I was making too much money.
0: Well, look, Which brings us quite nicely onto your relationship with Dong King. You met him in the mid-80s when he just discovered Mike Tyson. So he was sort of at the height of his power. What did he do for you?
1: Don, Don is the ultimate hustler. He gets things done. And because of boxing, because of Muhammad Ali and the, and the major fights that he was putting on worldwide, he had a lot of connections. So it was Las Vegas, 1984. And I had just finished the Trans Am races at Caesar's palace. And Uh, I got out of the car. I think I finished fourth. The the year before, I won. In 84, I I had a flat tire. I finished fourth. A courier from Don King. Now, there's not many black guys that are racetracks, Especially with suit and ties on. So I get out of the car. I'm taking my helmet off. And this guy walks over to me, black, says, "Um, could I have a uh, a minute of your time. I said, yeah, go ahead. He says, uh, Don King would like to meet you because Don King was having a fight. The race was at Vegas, Caesar's Palace. Well, right down the street at the Riviera was a Don King fight. So he sent a courier over and said, Don would like to meet you uh, if you'd like. I said, well, okay. He would like you to come to the fight, but he'd like to talk to you. What time do you want me there? He said, six o'clock. So I said, I'll be there. So I went over to meet Don King, went up to his office before the fight. Willie T, Willie T, you are the Muhammad Ali of racing. Oh, so I'd like to make you a
0: champion. And that's how it started with Don King.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So he said, he told me what he wanted to do. And, um, he said, here's a t- couple of tickets to the fight and, and the after party. And he says, let's meet again tomorrow. So we, I met with him and his lawyer and, you know, they handed me a contract. And I, I thought the contract was the wildest contract. It was insane. It had clauses that everything he gets, he gets 40%. Ooh. What was really wild is that he could fly Concord and he could go all over the world and I would pay for it to do a deal. So after about six weeks, you know, of fu, and the N word back and forth, <laughs> it was great. I, I was great negotiating. I, I, I thought it was very entertaining because it was a lot of pro- profanity. And, and I just said, look, you know, Don, you guys, man, you're dealing with fighters. Those poor guys don't know how to read or write. I said, they don't, I come from a family, a business family. I said, you know, color me white. Don't color me black in this case,
0: because you're not dealing with
1: somebody that's ignorant.
0: And did he deliver on his promises? Yeah, he did.
1: He delivered and right now. There was only a few people that delivered on their promises in my racing career. One was Paul Newman and, of course, Jim Cruman, Bill Cosby, Don King, uh, and Bernie Eccleston.
0: So Don, tell me if I'm wrong, brought the Miller Brewing Company to the to the party for the Indy 500 in 1985, is that right? That is
1: correct. He brought Miller Brewing Company, and he called, he he had a really uh, close relationship with the president of Miller Brewing. And he called and said, hey, I want to do this for Willie T. You know who he is. He needs no introduction. Would you do it? And uh, they said, yep.
0: But unfortunately, that 85 Indy 500, you didn't qualify for the race. And well, you walked away, didn't you? You walked away.
1: Yeah, I walked away from it. The, the, the team manager who was the engineer as well, uh, him and I, uh, it was uh, oil and water right from the start. I could tell he didn't even want me there. And I knew it. And Indianapolis is not the place where you have bad communication. That's not the racetrack. You can have it maybe at some other racetrack, but at Indy, uh, other than the Isle of Man, Indy's the most dangerous place in the world.
0: And how bad was the car that year?
1: It was bad, and I was trying to figure out why they, they couldn't, why I couldn't get any uh, communication. I got a phone call from Jim Truman, and Truman said, "Get out of it. Get out of it."
0: Because he thought you were going to hurt yourself and have an accident?
1: He just thought it was going to be a bad uh, ending. I, I was smart enough to know that this is not going to work. So there's no sense in kicking a, a can down the road. Let's just uh, do it some other time.
0: Okay, so then fast forward six years and you're back at Indy. Trying to qualify and, and and really significantly managing to do so. And the footage is incredible. The last 15 minutes of bump day, you squeeze in. Even now, all these years later, do you still feel emotional when you think of that achievement?
1: Well, yeah, it was a big deal. And it was a big deal worldwide. Probably the most satisfying part of that is that it wasn't a lot of money. Bill Cosby wrote a check for $350,000. To do Indy takes a million dollars just to do that one race, to be competitive. So with that 350000 we had to buy a car. We had to have engine. We had to have the components to do it. What made the difference? Tim Wardrop from England, phenomenal engineer. He'd won Indy twice as an engineer before that. And he was just brilliant. and the team that Derek Walker put together with Wardrip and John Waters and Lori Garish, just some really smart guys. We didn't have a lot, but there was some. Just, I mean, if we would have had a million dollars, we'd have been front runner. But we made it. We did it. We qualified despite the engine failures that we were having with the Buick engines because Buick had a bunch of bad rod bolts and they were snapping. So I wasn't getting a whole lot of practice. And at Indy, you've got to run. You've got to run. And drivers will tell you, whether it's Fernando Alonso. Ask Alonso how tough Indy is. Ask Nelson Piquet. Indy is a very tough
0: place. Fernando Alonso failed to qualify for Indy last year, didn't he? Exactly.
1: And Indy don't care who you are and how many championships you won. It is a very difficult place. And it can get into your head. It can get... Indy can get into your head. And so you just have to stay cool. And we, uh, we you know, stayed cool and we got the job done. And to get into the show in those days was really hard. There was a lot of cars that attempted to qualify in those days. And uh, we bumped out Tom Sneva. He He had won the race in 83.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. And, of course, you then go back in... 93, <laughs> with Nigel Mansell, <laughs> brings you back to Nigel, same race, and do it again. I guess these were the most high-profile outings in your career. Is that fair?
1: Absolutely. Indy's the biggest race on the planet. Formula One, without question, hands down. There's no bigger championship in uh, on four wheels. Formula One is it. If you want to be uh, a champion, Formula One is the crown you want. If you want to win a race. Indy 500 is the race you want to win. Because it's such a big deal, being in the race means a lot. You know, you you go to a Grand Prix. For example, you're in Austria. Three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're on a plane to the next show, right? Indy, you're there for a month. One month. You wake up in the morning, you eat breakfast, and you know you got to go fast. Okay? You go back to bed. You go to sleep knowing. I got to go fast. And if there was anything that I could say might relate being in war, it would be at Indy for a month. You're there. You can't leave it. You're there. You're stuck there and, uh, until it's over. And you watch these guys hang it out, and you watch guys bang into the wall. And When you hit the wall at in Indy, oh, uh, you've hit a wall. Anywhere else on the planet, you hadn't hit a wall until you hit a wall in Indy.
0: Now, look, talking of a, a metaphorical wall, did your success in qualifying for those two Indies encourage diversity within IndyCar or indeed American motorsport? Did you get letters from young black kids saying, I really want to be a racing driver like you, Willie? Or
1: Oh, yeah, I got that. Uh, there was a lot of interest. There was worldwide, there was a lot of interest, right? Same thing what Lewis is getting now. That's what Lewis is getting. Well, I got the same thing.
0: But did anything come of it though?
1: No, corporate America turned their back on me. Uh, manufacturers, the engine manufacturers, they did not participate to move my career along, which would help the sport motivate diversity.
0: So it was just, a, it, there was a peak of interest and then what, within a year, it was back to how it always had been. Is that what you're... Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, nothing. Nothing's changed. Even today, since Formula One took the bull by the horns and Lewis Hamilton took the bull by the horns, and started pushing diversity, then they all jumped on the bandwagon, right? Lewis was the first. And now they're all, you know, IndyCar and all of that. You know, those guys over here you know, especially IndyCar, you know, they they talk a big game. They're like a guy that meets a girl at a bar, talks about his manhood, and then she finds out later uh, it's short hood. So that's what they're they're talking about over here.
0: But Willie, if you, you know, you achieved your success, why did it take another 30 years and Lewis Hamilton to create the wave of, of momentum that we have now?
1: Well, Ron Dennis created Lewis Hamilton, let's face it. I mean, Ron Dennis uh, is, uh, wrote the playbook on, on how to bring diversity.
0: But it's still taken Lewis 14 years to get to a position where he's at now in which he can try and make serious changes.
1: Well, I think he had to, you know, and, and maybe he could have did it earlier. Okay. However, you got to, you know, you got to build credibility and six world championships builds credibility. There's nothing more credible than that. He now can use that. Formula One can use it, and they should use it, okay? Take Lewis Hamilton's brand, which the whole world has seen, and, and bring these kids along and for the survival of the sport, not just bringing diversity to the sport, but for the survival of it.
0: And how much do you think Lewis can change the sport?
1: He can change a ton. I would like to uh, team up with him on that, right? Because Lewis ran into a lot, a lot of opposition, but he didn't get death threats. I know a little bit about how rough it is. And same, with this young kid in NASCAR, Bubba Wallace, those boys don't know how tough it was. But I dealt with it a different way. I did, I never, uh, complained about it. If I dealt I dealt with, with my fists, that's how I dealt with racism. And, and I will continue to deal with it like that. So I think the sports now sees that here's a great opportunity for it to really expand its base. You want it, you want, and you know what, Tiger Woods, just look at what Tiger Woods did for golf. Okay? Golf, you know, Arnold Palmer and Jack uh, uh Nicholas, they were they were uh great for the sport. But when Tiger came into golf, it became massive. Okay, well, Formula One is seeing that with Lewis. Okay, don't don't uh keep that momentum going. Bring on the next Lewis Hamilton. Formula One has got drivers from all over the world, from different countries. Formula One looks progressive. None of the other sports do, despite NASCAR having Bubba Wallace. Is Bub's there for show or is Bub's there for go? Well, Lewis is in Formula One for go.
0: How well do you know Lewis?
1: Well enough to be his guest in his pit.
0: In Cota, uh, you're, you're Lewis's guest.
1: Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and his dad, Anthony, I love his dad.
0: Yeah. Wonderful family. Yeah, are you his guest at COTA every year?
1: Not every year. It was mainly uh, most of the time Bernie's guest, Uncle Bernie. I love him. There was a statement he made recently about uh, racism. I'm going to talk with him and and let him realize the difference that racism creates hate ism. Okay, and I think he was confused about that. You know, saying that you know. Some blacks are more racist than whites. No, Uncle Bernie. Blacks will become hatists, not racists. Racism creates hatism.
0: And do you still know Bernie well enough now to pick up the telephone?
1: Oh, in a heartbeat. When, he was, uh, when I asked him to be in the film, uppity, no questions. No, when do you want to do it? That's my Uncle Bernie. Love him.
0: Bernie's a father again, isn't he? Well,
1: you talk about statues. What he did at 89 years old, he should have a statue on every corner in London. Okay? Every corner. Should be a Bernie <laughs> Ecclestone. What he did at 89? No. I mean, that is that is Superman status. <laughs> Superman. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, he did. He's certainly done a lot for Formula One, but Formula One is now, it's a new era with Liberty, with Chase, with Ross, and uh, they've got the ball and they're definitely running with it as well, aren't they?
1: Well, I love Ross. Ross and I've been friends for a long time and he can get the job done. And if he's involved with diversity, things are gonna happen. And I hope uh, Mustachio has got Ross's back.
0: Is that what you call Chase?
1: Yeah, yeah, Mustachio. <laughs>
0: okay. Oh, wow, what an amazing chat. I feel, it's uh, Willie, it's been wonderful to, to talk to you and, and to realize that you are still so connected with Formula One.
1: Well, Formula One has made it possible you know, and it's all because of Bernie, but, you know, Herbie Blash been a great friend, Charlie Whiting before he passed, and of course, Ross, they have always kept me in, in, in some way. We want your presence, Willie T. And, uh, and, I always, and I always give them my presence and I always give them my respect. And I totally admire what's going on with the kids today and what these young men are trying to do. They're worldwide superstars. They got a worldwide platform.
0: You've said it beautifully. Willie, thank you so much for your time. Wonderful to speak. See you at KOTA if we get there this year.
1: I'll see you at Cota or before. Yeah, yeah. Anytime, man.
0: Isn't Willie great? So many fantastic stories and he's still passionate about Formula One. I can't help wondering what he might have done in Grand Prix racing if he'd had a proper crack at it. And by that, I mean a thorough test programme ahead of going racing. Don't forget that those turbo cars of the mid-80s were absolute beasts, and he acquitted himself well at Estoril. What he had to go through as a driver was outrageous, and let's hope that he and Lewis and the entire F1 community can continue to make a real difference in the fight to end racism. It feels like things are finally happening, and long may it continue. Willie, thanks for your time. It was great to chat, and I look forward to seeing you whenever F1 next races at Cota. Well, that's almost it for this week, but as ever, let me dive into the virtual mailbag to see what you're saying about the show. It seems that many of you are excited about the return of Fernando Alonso next year, and you loved hearing Pat Simmons talk about the two-time champ last week. Ralvin Gross said, Last episode with Pat Simmons was definitely one of my favourites. Great insights into Alonso's comeback, work ethic and early days. Really enjoyed listening to how Alonso compares to greats such as Senna and Michael. And if I had that blank check, I would pick Senna and Alonso in my team. Well, Ralvin, that would be one hell of a driver lineup. For me, it would definitely be Senna in one car. And then a coin toss for either Schumacher or Alonso in the other. Now, Jason Hill said this about that show. I enjoyed the candid, insightful conversation with Pat Simmons this week. Seems like one of the sharpest minds in F1 and not one that we've heard much from, at least as an F1 fan in the US. I like the format focusing on Alonso's extraordinary talent. As I said last week, Jason, few people in racing know Fernando as well as Pat. In fact, there's a strong argument to say that Pat helped to sculpt Fernando into the phenomenal driver he became. And Wavel Gomez says, Wow, that was an amazing conversation from Pat Simmons. That's why he is my favourite. I can understand a bit about Fernando's outburst, but Honda did manage to make an F1 engine thanks to him. Fernando certainly embarrassed Honda, didn't he, Wavel? And you're right, their engine is now very good. Well, that's it for this week, folks. And I'm sorry if I didn't read out your message, but please keep getting in touch. And if you want to drop me a line, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. As ever, thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.